Spring is here, and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get a chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry. Nope. But a box fan? Happily, yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello, and welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. I'm Ashley Quinlan, Senior Technical Editor for All Things Road and Gravel. In this episode of the podcast, I sit down with Factor Bike CEO and founder Rob Jatellis. It's fair to say Rob's been around the cycling block a bit, first as a carbon manufacturing expert and factory owner, working with some of the biggest and best-known brands in the world, before taking over at Factor Bikes as we know it today alongside ex-racer Baden Cook. I asked Rob about his history in the bike world and get his take on the future of carbon as a material to make performance bike frames and parts. That's before moving on to ask him what he thinks about the challenging trading environment the industry finds itself in, plus how brands might best steer clear. Enjoy the chat. So Rob, thank you for joining us on the Bike Radar podcast. How are you today? I'm good. I, I hear you've just taken a flight all the way over from Taiwan. And yeah, it's, uh... Taiwan, Paris, Paris, Bath. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, well, I didn't know we had an airport in Bath. Uh, that's Bristol, where we are. The Bristol. Moment. Bristol. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, uh, what what brought you over from there? Did you come from direct from the factory? Well, I'm always at the factory, but um, I came uh, have some uh, some meetings to attend in London and uh, wanted to check in with some of my friends here in Bath. Cool. Okay. So. Let's get stuck right in then. So tell us a little bit about your history in, in, in cycling. I know, I know it goes back a, a small way. Um, and, you know, you've been involved in the cycling industry long before you were sort of a, a you know, founder, CEO of, of, of Factor. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I moved to Taiwan in 1996. So that's now, what, 28 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I worked for the very first carbon fiber manufacturer um, making bicycles in Taiwan called Advanced Composites. And so when I first went there, they were producing golf club shafts and um, they wanted to enter the bicycle industry. And uh, they hired me as sort of employee number one 
to help sort of guide, you know, the bicycle division, which meant, you know, figuring out how to make bikes, what they were supposed to ride like, who to sell them to, you, you name it. And so probably if I think about it, I probably have the longest history of anyone in the carbon bicycle industry. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And when you went to Taiwan, I mean, at that time then, you know, the carbon manufacturing, we all consider, we, we take it for granted now, you know, carbon bikes are made in Taiwan, yeah. you know, 99% of them. Uh, um, when I went there, bikes, you know, there was, Look was making a few bikes in France. Uh, Castrell was making bikes in the USA, um, both pretty niche. And there really wasn't a bicycle industry yet for carbon fiber um, composites. I remember, you know, after working there for about a year, they asked me to kind of have a road show. And I went to the U.S. and I went and I visited Specialized and Santa Cruz and Fuji and some others. And uh, everybody was pretty much like, mm, we're not very sure about this material. We don't think this is the future. And I was like, OK, you're, maybe you're right. Um, but yeah, it turns out uh, I think that, uh, you know, it just took a few more years for everybody to adopt it. Yeah. And. Did, did that adoption come from? I know. I know the you know we go back a, a long way to the factors history. There's there's a link to Formula One. There is a lot of a lot of with you know carbon development. Is as that was that kind of a key cornerstone for, for for the brand? Does it remain that now, or do you as it developed since then? Um, do you mean for factor itself? For yeah. factor itself, yeah. I, I mean, I suppose for factor and for the bike industry because well, I, I, I imagine I, they're different. I think things. if we look at the bike industry, I think that it just took a few brands, you know, willing to be a little more creative. So I think, you know, Giant was a very early adopter and then obviously Trek doing their own thing in, in Wisconsin, you know, kind of helped drive it along. Took, you know, a few big brands to get on board that then everybody else needed to sort of follow suit. At the beginning, it was always these sporting good companies that were making tennis rackets or badminton rackets they got into bicycles. It was about 2008 or so, maybe a little earlier than that, that we started to see bicycle-specific carbon fiber factories. And that really started to change the game because now you had people that were really, you know, honed in on this is what we're going to make and we're not, you know, building other products for other industries. Yeah. And, you know, Factors got, we'll cover it a little bit later, you know, Factors sort of early history. But, but how did you get involved, you know, in the brand of, of Factor? How did that come about? Factor, you know, was started by uh, BF1, which was a Formula One telemetry company working for many supercars uh, here in the UK. And it was started by a guy named John Bailey. He gave his team, who were very bored with, you know, the engineering they were doing, the task of let's build a bicycle, let's build it all ourselves, and let's, you know, use it as a technology showcase for what we can do. Um, that was 2013. They created, they built their own frame, they built their own wheels. They did direct mount disc brakes before direct mount disc brakes ever existed. Mm. They did uh, mechanical to hydraulic disc brakes before anybody ever knew what, what it was about. So they were really way ahead of their time. From that very inception, I kind of got involved in that, that project in the sense of just kind of helping with geometry a little bit and just sharing some of my experience with them. And so that led to them later wanting to perhaps enter the bicycle industry, you know, as a more of a mainstream brand. So they came to my factory in China, developed the Visverez frame, which again, won many awards, was very interesting, 
But then they found out that they were really too busy with what they were doing at BF1 to truly enter the bicycle industry as they had hoped they, they could. And so I approached John Bailey about, hey, would you be willing to sell me the IP? Because it's kind of a cool name. And, you know, it'd be a nice way of seeing it, it continue. And he was pretty excited about, yeah, he always wanted to see it. And so I felt like it kind of came home coming with me. And so, you know, that was sort of where it ended up in 2017. And what motivated that? What motivated that step? Because it would be fair to say maybe you were behind the scenes before before that, and now you're sort of yeah. I mean, your own brand. I was building bikes for Cervelo, for Santa Cruz, for BH, for Pivot, components for Envy, for Bontrager, for Zip. You um, name it. <laughs> you name it. Yeah, and it was all you know, really the premium who's who of the bike industry that I was working with, and I was pretty proud of that. But then there was becoming all of these consolidations, you know, SRAM bought Zip, uh, Pond bought Cervelo, Focus, and Santa Cruz. And so these consolidations weren't really working out in my favor because I was always kind of the most expensive third-party, you know, manufacturer because I always did the best work. And sometimes, you know, these companies, when they get purchased, the purchaser needs to figure out, well, how am I going to get my money back? And so they, they look for lower cost manufacturing or things like that. And I remember, you know, when I was working with, with Cervelo, you know, it used to always be my, my relationship was directly with Phil and Gerard, the founders, and they would just come to me like, here's the project. And, you know, there was never a discussion about price or anything like that. It was about let's meet the goals and let's get this going. And at the end, I would give them an invoice and we were all good. Pond comes along and they're like, we'll give you an RFQ. And I'm like, what's an RFQ? And they're like, a request for quote. Uh. And I'm like, okay. And we're going to give this RFQ to like five other factories. And the factory with the lowest bid will get the case. And I'm like, good luck with that. I don't do that. No, it, <laughs> yeah. seemed, it seems somewhat contrary to what you described originally. Yeah, I'm like, I don't, I don't do that. And so I pretty much, had, you know, kind of said goodbye to then that business. And since they had bought three of my biggest customers, I was like, this could be a pretty big turning point. And I was at a point in my life where I could have just stopped. But I was like, I still have kind of something to prove. And in some ways, you know, I can kind of thank them for starting Factor because, um, you know, with that sort of chip on my shoulder, I went and started Factor, always thinking perhaps I could make a better bike. Because when I was doing that third-party manufacturing for people, I always felt like we were leaving something behind. Because a lot of times I would go back to the, my customers and I'd be like, hey, why don't we spend another $25, $30 on this and it'll be better. And they would always come back to me and say, no. They're like, we can't afford it because, you know, $30 here is $300 down the line. And, uh, you know, that just doesn't work for us. And I was, for me, I was always like, well, you could just absorb that $30. You don't need to pass it all the way through. And you offer your riders a better bike. And uh, it was just, they didn't get it or I didn't get it. Maybe they were right and I was wrong. I don't know. But uh, it wasn't what I wanted to do once I had Factor. Okay. Um, and I think since, well, let's uh, that's, talk about then, you know, the, the, the bike development then. I know Factor had a history, you know, the, we talk about the twin vein down tubes, for example. There was also a seat tube that had twin vein in it as well for aerodynamic benefits at the time. Um, and that was, you know, the Viz Virez, the, the one that followed that. Um, since then, 
I think it'd be fair to say the factors designs have, have gone maybe slightly more mainstream. Can you talk about that a little bit well, and the decisions behind that? I would say the twin vane down tube was never really an aerodynamic advantage. It was actually a stiffness advantage because you had so much additional surface area. It was kind of like running an I-beam down a bike. Um, so there was a lot of advantage there, but it came with a lot of, you know, it came with a weight penalty. It came with a Manuf manufacturing difficulty penalty is very, yeah. very difficult to make. And so as we wanted to produce more, what I would call, you know, race bikes, it became necessary to kind of migrate away from the twin vein down tube. I think it was amazing. It was amazing that we could do it. And it's quite funny. All of our bikes have been copied by, you know, counterfeits, but nobody's ever bothered to counterfeit, you know, anything with a twin vein down tube because they all look at it and they're like, Wow, this is really hard to make. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 40%. Up to 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Let's talk about then the 001, which I think was the Genesis bike for, mm -hmm. um, you know, for the F1 systems and, yeah. and, and so on. And it had the, I believe it had the, the, that twin vane down tube. It was yes. very complicated, but it had all the... You know all the sensors on it that you could possibly want, and maybe right. you know, maybe I don't know. Maybe that was a publicity sort of stunt to you know to pull over F one kind of technology. Mm -hmm. You know, torque sensors and your measures and so on. You know, do, do you still use that kind of technology in the business? I think that we definitely use some of that in the development of new product, so of testing existing product. But I don't think that anybody has yet done that level of integration of what, you know, BF1 had done at that time. I do see where the industry might start to migrate that way. I think that, you know, obviously we're seeing a lot of other integration. And now I think becomes a pretty good time when, you know, a lot of that stuff that, you know, BF1 did at that time, there wasn't enough computing power on the bike. They had a power meter on the bike that they had developed themselves that would just overwhelm a Garmin in just a matter of, you know, a few minutes. But now, I mean, you can get all of that same technology into an iPhone. And so now we could get almost all of that onto the bike without a very big weight penalty. Um, and so it's something we're definitely considering, you know, of how to have more integrated electronics. And those integrated electronics and I suppose integration in general. And when I... Pick up when I'm sat sat in front of my computer on a general work day, and I pick up a press release, or I, I get a, a marketer, you know, someone in marketing gets in touch with me and says, "Hey, we've got a new bike launching." They're always sort of stiffer 
lighter, <laughs> faster. They always come with like tests behind them or, or they've seen a wind tunnel, loads of CFD testing, you know, supercomputers have been working on them to create the best bike ever. As someone who's sort of heavily involved in sort of carbon and bike manufacture and design from Genesis all the way through, you know, how much stall should the customer at the end pay by that? How, how much should they pay attention to that? I think it depends on who it's coming from and the transparency that the brand is giving. I think a lot of people tell that story. I think a lot of people tell the wind tunnel story or a lot of people tell the CFD story. Um, and people, you know, I think when you see a bike in a wind tunnel that is painted with decals on it, that's a photo opportunity. When we go to the wind tunnel, we're going there with lots of plastic models that are stuck together with duct tape and printed on our, you know, in-house 3D printer. And we're there doing, you know, science work. We're not in there testing a product that we've already made a mold and fully, you know, qualified because what are you going to do if it's not fast? It's too late. You're not going to go throw it away because you found out then. So if you're there using the wind tunnel for photo opportunity, then you're not really serious. The same with CFD. You know, CFD, it used to be very few brands could actually even afford to do it. There are now, you know, open source CFD that you can do on the internet. Again, they're just photo opportunities. If you don't know how to read the data and you don't know how to do multiple, multiple iterations, you're really not gathering anything. Um, I was sent, you know, just recently like a cold call uh, CFD marketing thing where, where, and it was funny, they showed all the brands that use their software and I was like, oh, well, that's where they're all getting these pretty photos from. But when we do CFD, we call it, you know, we call it a front to back development. We start at the front of the bike and we start iterating and it requires making maybe 50 or 60 3D models that you then put into the CFD to keep testing and testing and testing. Most companies don't have the bandwidth to do 50, 60 3D models to actually properly be doing the CFD and then be able to really analyze the results and then be able to, you know, put it in practice to a bike. And so I think you always need to separate. So who's showing you this pretty picture for marketing purposes and who's really doing the work? And how did the two mix then? Where, where does that confluence sort of come from? Because we often hear stories uh -huh. in, as a, myself a motorsport fan, I often hear stories of, um, you know, the, the numbers in the, in the wind tunnel, the CFD don't line up with either the wind tunnel, what's going on on track or on the course. Now, how does it, how do you get that confidence? Well, right? I think that a lot of times that's what we're doing. So what we talk about is we talk about sort of three pillars in our development. Um, the first pillar being the CFD. So we, we say that designed here. So we design in CFD, then we qualify in the wind tunnel. So we build something in CFD, we then make like a 3D printed model that we take to the wind tunnel and we test it. And that's our second pillar. And then the third pillar is tested here. And that's with our world tour athletes, both male and female, where we're giving them the products to actually go out and ride and get ride feel. We do all of that before we've ever made a bike for a consumer. And so, you know, the pros will be on the bike for several months before the consumers ever get it. And maybe the pros will say, eh, it should be perhaps less stiff or perhaps, you know, it's feeling a little bit, you know, fidgety or things like that. And so we'll work with many uh, iterations to get them the bike that they feel is, is meeting their needs. And from that, then we start to produce the consumer's bikes. 
And th- those pro riders then, at what point are they, I know you've described it, they sort of get validated after you've designed the bike. Do they come in a little bit earlier than that, though, to give some feedback as to what they <coughs> want? Do they help you know, draw that blueprint, the, the bike that you want to create? Yeah, well, I think, you know, <laughs> in many ways, we just launched our new Astro VAM uh, a couple of weeks ago. And the thing that we got from most of our sponsored athletes is don't fuck this up. <laughs> because the bike is so good already that they didn't they were scared that we were going to take it in a direction that uh that they didn't like it and so th- we had to be really careful that we took in you know that it had to remain in austro it needed to ride and feel as the current bike did but we knew it could be a little bit faster and that was really the goal behind it nobody said it needed to be lighter because it's already right at the uci weight limit nobody said it needed to be stiffer um, but everybody said, you know, keep all of the riding, you know, but if you can make it faster, that's fantastic. But if you can't, the, the one we have now is already great. So Sure. And do you do you look outwards as well at, the, at what other brands have done? Do you use them for inspiration or look at those bikes? I don't think we look at them for inspiration, but it's kind of interesting. Like we were really struggling with where to put our battery in the new bike. And so one of our dealers, you know, is a really, he's kind of a a good friend. He's like, just do what Pinarello does. It works really well. And then, okay, then we went and we looked at what Pinarello does. We're like, oh yeah, that's clever. Let's just do the same. But we don't go looking at other people's bikes for inspiration per se. And we definitely chart our own course about, you know, the development of our bikes. And... Talk about pro riders. Um, it's a nice little segue. We'll move on to a little bit of Chris Froome. Um, <laughs> sure. I know he he reportedly invested, you know, a chunk of a chunk of money um, and joined the board of directors uh, last year. How involved is he? Factor, chief right. test pilot. I'm thinking. <laughs> well, it's actually it's actually been three years now. I mean, obviously, we've all seen that Chris has not come back to the rider he used to be, but Chris is still very much an important part of Factor in that you know he's still a member of the team. Um, he still, you know, gets the, you know, not just his own input, but input from all the riders on, uh, on Israel Premier Tech, as well as, you know, he gets us other sort of inside information about what riders are saying about, you know, from other teams about the products that they're using and, and actually seeing it with his own eyes. And so, you know, he's a really important part of factor in especially our time trial development. Um, when we developed the Hanzo, it's coming up on its second year now. You know, he was an important part of it. But even since he's been racing on the Hanzo the past two years, he's also come back just recently saying, you know, the time trial courses are changing very much again, even now. They're getting much more technical, and we need a bike that is even more stable at high speed in turning because that's becoming more important now than just straight line speed is the the actual handling of the bike being able to accelerate, decelerate it. And I suppose with, with when you're looking at that, you're also looking at integration. So let's let's move on to sort of black ink and you know your your components brand. You know, what are the advantages that you see in creating your own aftermarket components? Because there's there's plenty of uh, you know, if I if I'm if I'm a listener to this podcast now, I might say, well, there are loads of high end, you know, and expensive but high-end uh, components that I could put on my bike and it, and it worked really well. So so what are the advantages that you see? Well, I look at it as whenever, well, first of all, let me back up. As I mentioned earlier, we used to work with Envy and Zip. Yeah. So we, only, we, we have a pretty good pedigree on making products. Whenever we're designing a new bike, we're always thinking about, okay, what are the wheels that should go with that bike? 
So we were talking about our Hanzo uh, TT bike a few minutes ago. The Hanzo, when we developed that bike, we came out with a new disc wheel, which is the fastest disc wheel in the world, according to our testing, as well as lots of other pro teams that are now buying that disc wheel. And so we're always thinking about, you know, how to design things, not in a vacuum, but a frame together with the wheel set. And so by having that wheel brand, it enables us to, you know, be developing that wheel set to go along with it. So, you know, on the Ostra that we just launched a couple of days ago, we launched a new wheel set, which is our first um, mixed height wheel. So it's a 48 front and 58 rear. And I think the wheel set is like 1,250 grams, which is probably one of the lightest, if not the lightest in, in that particular uh, category. And so, you know, when we talk about wheels, we're not just like getting some open models and stacking some stickers on it, you know, we're, we're doing just as much development work on our wheels as we are in our frame sets. So the great majority of those products and, you know, aftermarket all the frames mm -hmm. are made of carbon. That's mm -hmm. where your expertise is. Yeah. Um, how do you see carbon manufacturing developing in the future? Honestly, we feel like the weight has hit the floor for something that is truly aerodynamic. I think we can see that Factor and Specialized both just took kind of a different approach. Specialized launched the SL8 not long ago, and it's very simplified round tubes, but then they've gone with very deep wheels, very deep handlebar in order to achieve their aerodynamic goals. Um, Factor with our Austro VAM that we launched, it's much more, you know, aero designed frame with less deep wheels, less deep handlebar, which we think makes for a better riding bike still a little faster than the SL8. But what I would say is when we get into that arrow-shaped tubing on the frames, I think we're as thin as we can possibly go with the current carbon technology. I don't think you could have made a lighter bike than we have. And I say that because we've made bikes that meet all of our requirements, stiffness-wise, uh, strength-wise, ride performance-wise, but you could break it with your thumbs. And so that's obviously not acceptable. And so we're having to add weight in the frames to make the walls thicker so that it won't what we call oil can, where you can actually break it on a bike rack or something like that. So we've definitely reached the, the limit of the material at this point. And are there sort of, I, I'll use the phrase, space age materials out there that could replace carbon or... or, 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 or um improve carbon from where it is right now. TechStream was something that people talked about a lot <laughs> in recent past, and graphene was another one as well. And we talk about, you yeah. know, different words get bandied about right. and probably used well, in marketing. Well, TechStream tech is just another cloth material. We actually use a lot of TechStream in our bikes. It's just a carbon woven material. Um, yeah, graphene was one we heard about. Before that, it was nano, and who, who knows what the next buzzword will be. I would say at the moment, it's not very clear what's on the horizon. I think that what we probably will see is maybe some potential internal reinforcements, which would allow us to remove a little more weight. But at the moment, there's really no sort of magic material coming down the pipeline that I can see. Okay. But one thing that is sort of here, and I would suggest here to stay, although that's that's my opinion, is 3D printing. Mm -hmm. You know, and we've seen we've seen sort of Filippo Ganna ride a you know a 3D printed metal bike right. to um, you know to an hour world record and so mm -hmm. on. And it's probably good, you know 3D printing will be a thing at the Olympics. You know, do you think that's 
one element of the future of road and sort of gravel and mountain bikes too? Well, I can definitely see like 3D printing as far as like accessory parts. Like we're building the bike for the Australian Olympic team. And while the handlebar is uh, carbon fiber, because obviously we all know that they had a little challenge four years ago, their extensions are 3D printed uh, titanium. And so I can see 3D printed titanium as a very viable uh, way of doing things that are one-off or customized. 3D carbon fiber is still not there yet because it's a thermoplastic material and it's too heavy. So uh, I think we're, we're still not quite there yet. But um, you know, I, I think it's definitely one of the more interesting technologies. We use a lot of 3D printing in making, like I said, our wind tunnel samples. We also use it for making a lot of our layup molds because you know we used to have to make these out of CNC, very heavy plastic, and so you were, you know, it, it wasn't great for how much stuff went in the garbage can. When by doing it by 3D printing, you know, you're just using exactly the amount of material that you need and no more. Yeah, and the other. I'm thinking now, are there like, you know, precision benefits to using 3D printing as well? Like, can you get it exactly spot on as opposed to having flaws uh, in, in, in the construction? Not so much so, okay. but I do think that it's also a lot, you know, this the speed of which you can have it is a lot quicker if it's something that you're doing in-house, which is what we are as well. Yeah, which presumably helps the iteration process and yes. helps you speed along that development. Yeah. So have you seen those timelines from conception through to sort of realization of a bike get shorter as a result or are you cramming more work in in the same sort of time periods because that's what the market demands we are one of the few brands that owns our own factory uh, we own our own tooling shops we we basically do the entire process by ourselves so i really can't speak for what the rest of the industry has done you know i'll be honest when i was doing third-party manufacturing uh, someone would come to me with a new bike and it would take 18 months because i had a queue of other customers that were in front of them. Uh, now my only other customer is myself. And so, you know, we can definitely create a lot of products a lot faster than pretty much anyone else because of owning all of that ourselves. I think the thing that probably holds us back is we maybe spend too much time in the wind tunnel and doing uh, CFT modeling that because uh, we really are doing the work. And so when, when you're creating those bikes those, and you know, even the components as well for the blacking side of things, you know, we're talking about high-end componentry now, like sort of, you know, theoretically, there's no ceiling to what you're, you're, you're creating. Would, we, would you ever foresee a time when Factor might make a more accessible or mid-priced kind of bike? Is that something you've ever considered? Well, I think it's, it all depends what we call mid-price. Of course, it, it, <laughs> um, it, it, it very much depends, doesn't right. it? Yes. Um, I like to think that our bikes are attainable. I think that when people look at factor, yeah, it's on the, you know, it's on the more premium side, but there's definitely more mainstream brands that are even more expensive than factor. And when you look at what you get from factor, I think that it's actually very good value for money. Short of asking you, how do you price your bikes? How do you decide how much something costs? Where do you ascribe the value and, and the, that monetary kind of uh, cost to someone? I think what we do is we don't look at our manufacturing cost and then say, we need to make a minimum margin of X. What I do is I look at, this is what I think the value of it is. That's what I sell it for. And as long as I'm happy with the amount of money that our company is making and it can support all of those things that we want to do, then I, I'm happy with the price. I don't look at it. If I just took my manufacturing cost, which is much higher than many other brands, 
And then if we, you know, we looked at just putting, you know, a margin on it, you know, of industry standard, our bikes would be a lot more expensive than they are now. But obviously by owning the factory, we don't use the factory as a profit center. We use the factory as if it was just one other process. That's just a pass-through cost to us. So we have a pretty big advantage over most of our competitors because we do own the factory. But keep in mind, when we were just making a thousand bikes a year, that factory costs us a lot of money. But now that we're making quite a few more bikes than that, um, you know, we can justify having that factory because we're meeting sort of like that minimum overhead that the factory brings with it. Sure. So that that kind of there's that unique kind of business model, the the manufacturing model at least. You know, you still occupy the same industry as everyone else. So I'd really like to get your viewpoint on the difficulties that the bike industry has faced in the last few years. And you know, do you see it bouncing back first of all, and what will it take for it to bounce back? Well, I think we all know that the industry it had a very quick turndown at the start of COVID. It came back incredibly strong. A lot of brands sort of got caught up in the whole purchasing cycle where the bikes didn't come in the time that they needed. Then the bikes came way too late. They still needed to take them. And then they are now left in a position of having too much inventory and discounting them. I think that a lot of that has flushed through the system. I think that there's more people riding bikes now than before COVID which I think is a positive thing. But I think that, you know, some people got, you know, maybe overly excited and thought that this bicycle boom was going to happen for or going to go on for a lot longer than it did. But I think that, um, you know, we will see some bankruptcies on the back of this. We already have because of people having too much inventory. It's a sad fact. But I think it was all completely self-inflicted. And so nobody has anyone to blame but themselves. I think the bigger issue here is how do we keep all those people who entered cycling, you know, enjoyment to continue to enjoy cycling now that we're, we're through the pandemic? You know, how do we keep all of these new riders that we created during the pandemic? Yeah. And do you see Factor having a role in that? I think that we perhaps, you know, sponsor more women's cycling than any other brand in the industry. Just set the tour down under a couple of months ago or so. We had four women's teams in the World Tour event. That's a pretty big deal. So I think we, we do that because it's the right thing to do. I think that, you know, we're not doing it because, oh, we want to own women's cycling or anything like that. We do this because it's the right thing to do. We sponsor Team Amani, uh, East African team. We've been with them for three years now. You know, we do that because it's the right thing to do, you know, and they're good people. And so... A lot of times people say to us, well, you know, all of these sponsorships, you know, including Israel Premier Tech, they all add cost to the bike. And I'll be like, that's true. And they're like, well, what if I don't want to pay that? And I'm like, well, then don't buy a factor. But I think that, you know, when you're buying a factor, you should understand that a lot of what we're doing is very genuine and that we're doing things for the right reason. And so I think that that goes towards let's keep all those people who bought bikes during the pandemic riding bikes. Let's not make our sports so uh, non-inclusive. So I'll end our conversation on the final question. What's next for Factor? Where do you see Factor in the next five or 10 years based on you know, what you can foresee at the moment, given the difficulties at the moment and where, where we all are? Well, thankfully, Factor hasn't really suffered any difficulties over the past few years, including this last year. Um, and I hope that we can continue on that trajectory. 
I think that we need to continue to put, you know, our riders first and develop amazing products. And I think that people will continue to recognize them and recognize the work we do. And, you know, my goal has always been to be the number one premium bike brand in the world. I don't really know what that means, to be honest with you. I say it, but I, I don't know how to judge it. But I think one of the things I learned at owning a brand versus doing manufacturing is when you own a brand, and I didn't realize this before, is everything you do, whether it be the product you develop, the marketing, the launch, anything, the next time always needs to be better. And that becomes really tiring. I think that so far we're managing that pretty well. The next time is always better. And I think when we start to develop product or start to do things where the next time isn't better, well, maybe that means we are the number one, or maybe that means that uh, you know we need to rethink what we're doing. Well, thank you very much for your time, and I really appreciate your insight into you know everything, you know the bike industry and factor as well in the future. And uh, yeah, thank you very much, Rob, for coming onto the Bike Radar podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends, or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode.